Well, we got, uh, we got some folks at home today, and let me tell you, that is okay. If you have some of these risk factors and you think you are safer at home during this outbreak, you stay home. We will, uh, we will support your wisdom there, okay? Now, for the rest of us, we will probably do what we usually do, which is try to obey our civil authorities, right? So if and when they say, hey, we don't want you even having a gathering of, of 50 or 60 or 70 people, then uh, we may have to look at that. But we'll, you know, the news changes every hour, so we'll keep an eye on it. We'll keep talking to our leadership team, and if we need to do something, we'll do something. Otherwise, you use the God-given wisdom that you have, and you decide whether it is safe for you to come to worship. Now, we are trying to be cautious. This morning, uh, I've, I haven't felt bad at all in, in a while, but I, was, uh, I just checked my temperature before I came, just to make sure, okay? So we all need to be safe, we need to be wise, and if you're at home uh, watching us on Facebook, we, we love you, we wish you were here, but we understand completely, so don't even, uh, don't even think about feeling bad about it. We are going to start looking in Daniel today. So if you will turn in your Bible to the book of Daniel, we're going to talk about faithfulness in a hostile world, and our world is becoming more and more hostile to the Christian faith. You know, when we think of Daniel, we think of a lot of familiar stories that we heard in Sunday school and heard as children. We know about uh, Daniel and the lion's den. Everybody's heard this story, and that's a great story of faith. We heard about Daniel and the fiery furnace and, and his friends and the fiery furnace. And so we will see those things as we go through Daniel. But a lot of times as we read through the Bible, we get to those stories and we go, yeah, those are awesome stories of faith. And then we get to the last half of the book of Daniel and we start seeing uh, statues with golden heads and clay and iron feet. And then we see beasts who look like a lion and they have wings like eagles and and we go, I don't know what that's about, but we're supposed to read this because it's in the Bible. <laughs> we go on. So we're going to talk in the first half of Daniel about some of those more uh, familiar things. And then in the second half of Daniel, we're going to talk about those prophetic visions. And Lord willing, we're going to understand what some of that has to do with. Daniel modeled faithfulness to God in a society that was hostile to God. And I believe that is very applicable to us today. He modeled a steadfast assurance of the sovereignty of God, even in extremely difficult circumstances. And again, that is something that we could use today. So starting in Daniel 1.1, read along with me. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. 
They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among those were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and gave them (coughs) food and wine and gave them uh, vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them he found none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now you know the reason that Daniel and these other guys were taken in captivity, we see in verse 1, is because King Nebuchadnezzar sieged Jerusalem and it fell. Now, you may say, why would God let his nation, his favored nation, his chosen nation, why would he let them fall? They were his covenant people. Well, he let them fall. Matter of fact, he caused them to fall because of the sin of the people. And this was his judgment. Now, I looked up various passages that that prophesied this fall, And I found a dozen of them, Um, but sometimes I ask Brother Jimmy to give me feedback on my sermons. And he says, I appreciate that you want to prove your point is biblical. He said, but we believe you after just one verse. So I'm going to show you one verse. Isaiah 39, 6 says, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. So the Lord had warned Jerusalem that if you rebel against me, if you continue in this idolatry that you are so fascinated with, I will remove you from this land. And the Lord keeps his promises. Now let me say, guys, if you think for a moment, and I think some of us do think this, we wouldn't say it this way, but I think it gets into our hearts that God is such a patriotic American that he's going to protect us. 
I love America. I am a patriotic American. But let me tell you, God will judge even Israel. And if God would judge Israel, I promise you God will judge America. So if we continue with our demonic practice of sacrificing unborn children on the, on the altar of convenience and a supposed freedom, God will in fact judge America. All throughout scripture, God uses one nation to judge other nations. Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Now that's true for individuals, but it is also true for nations. And we can see throughout the history of the Old Testament that God continually uses one nation to subjugate and to bring his his wrath and his punishment on another nation. You know, when the Israelites were conquering Canaan, God didn't just say, hey, I like you more than these other people, so why don't you go in there and take their stuff? God was judging these nations who were idolatrous, who were worshiping other gods, who were sacrificing their children to other gods. God took the nation of Israel and wiped them out as a judgment, a righteous judgment against these nations. And then when Israel persisted in their idolatry, he used another nation to punish them. Now God's judgment is sometimes delayed. Thank, thank God for that. Thank him for his mercy. But it will eventually come if there's no repentance. Now the good news is that if there is repentance, then sometimes God will, will mitigate the judgment altogether. I mean, consider Nineveh. Nineveh was about to be destroyed and God sent his prophet there to tell them. And that, that prophet didn't win them over by charisma. He didn't even want to be there. You know, he, he just told them what God told them. And they repented in sackcloth and ashes from the king down to the lowliest person. They proclaimed a fast and, and they didn't even let their animals eat. So all the animals and all the people in Nineveh went on a fast in humble repentance for the Lord and he didn't destroy the place like he intended to. So there is hope for us. That hope is in repentance though. When judgment comes, it won't be pleasant. But we need to seize the day, if we're here, to preach repentance and forgiveness. But don't wait until then. I'm hoping that God's judgment won't come on us anytime soon because the church does what the church is supposed to do. We are supposed to be preaching that message of repentance and faith even in the good times. Now the problem is sometimes folks won't listen to us in the good times. And if God uses those bad times in the future, that will open up opportunities. But like we said in our prayers earlier, guys, the fear over this virus creates opportunity for us to share the good news with people. Now, you, you may say, hey, I'm supposed to stay in my home, all that social distancing, right? Okay, well, call your friend, and if, if you're talking to him and you say, hey, I don't get to come see you because we're supposed to be kind of staying away from each other, how are you doing? And they start telling you how they're frightened by this, well, then take that opportunity to share the gospel with them because they may be in a mood to listen now like they have never been in before. Now, the next thing we're going to see in our passage is that these, these Hebrew boys were taken to a different culture and they were, the attempt was to reprogram them. Verse 3 says, The king commanded Asphanaz, his chief eunuch, 
to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So they were going to take them away from their land, isolate them, and teach them what culture expected of them. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Now, they had names that were associated with their God. They had names that that meant things in Hebrew about God and were God-honoring. And this new culture changed their names. Daniel was called Belteshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Mishael was called Meshach. And Azariah was called Abednego. So they took them, isolated them, separated them, educated them in the worldly, the Babylon culture, renamed them, did everything they could to assimilate them. Now, I'm a big fan of education. I'm currently working on my second master's degree. Uh, after my first master's degree, I was hoping that Melissa would start calling me master, but she didn't, so I had to go back and get my second master's degree in hopes that she'll finally do that, <laughs> right? Okay, we'll see. I don't think she will. But figuratively speaking, our education system has been taken captive by Babylon. Uh, there are some great education uh, educational places. Uh, I'm at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. All of our Southern Baptist seminaries are strong and conservative and God-honoring. But so much of our education system has been taken over by Babylon. You know, it's becoming extremely difficult to find young people that would not agree with and would, would say that the LGBTQ agenda is morally wrong. It's very hard to find a young person today that will say that it's morally wrong. Now, what they will say is morally wrong is saying that anything is morally wrong. That offends them. But something that God says is wrong, they will they'll call you all kind of names and think you're wrong, but they won't go along with that. Uh, tolerance is what they want, except for those who don't agree with them, in which case they're very intolerant. Now, they have been reprogrammed and reprogrammed in an amazingly brief period of time. Now, isolation, again, is the key to reprogramming. So, guys, if we send our young people off to college without preparation and without tying them into a local church and a local BSU and that kind of thing, then we are willingly doing what the Babylonians did. We are isolating them from what they need so that they can be more thoroughly reprogrammed. So if you have influence over a young person, you make sure that when they go to college, they stay tied to a local church and they stay tied into the BSU that is on their campus. I want us to notice that these youths were promised free stuff in order to make them dependent. Verse 5 said, The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank, and they were educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Does this sound familiar? Free food and free college, okay? All we want from you is your blind loyalty, and we'll give you free stuff. Guys, that plays well now, and it played well then. 
This is nothing new under the sun, okay? So we need to educate our folks. We need to educate our children. And guys, if you assume that the younger generation is on the same page with you about morals and conservatism, and they are not. You take every opportunity you can to speak truth to them. All right, so how do the believers respond? We're going to see that in verses 8 and following. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the other youths who are your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. So we see what's happening there. Daniel went to him and said, hey, I don't want to eat this food and drink this wine because it will defile me. And so I'm asking permission not to do that. And this guy liked him because God gave him favor. And he said, man, I'd like to help you out, but I can't because I fear for my own head. Because if I don't do what I'm told, then the king's going to have my head taken off. So he wanted to help him, but he couldn't. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So he went down the chain and he took a different approach. He said, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. We must resolve like he did to be faithful to God and be unstained from the world. Now, Daniel decided this before he ever got to Babylon, okay? He made this decision ahead of time. I will not... I'll be in Babylon, but I'm not going to let Babylon get into me. All right, that was how he resolved. And verse 8 says that the king's food and wine would defile him. Now, why, why does he say that? I don't know, and it doesn't tell us. Um, commentators don't know either. They speculate on different things. It could have been dietary laws. I mean, maybe they were serving him pulled pork, and he's like, I can't do that. Or this food may have been offered to idols, and he felt like it would be a betrayal to eat that food. Or it could have been that he just didn't want to be lulled by the, the decadence of the food that was given to him. We're not sure how it would have defiled him, but we know that he felt like it would. So Daniel was forced to live there, but again, he wasn't going to bow culturally to all their expectations. You know, we are called to be in the world, but not of the world. And Daniel gives us a wonderful example of what that means. Uh, Dr. Rogers used to tell us a story, you know, back in the day, a long time ago, my children don't remember this, but a long time ago, you couldn't get uh, pornographic images on your phone. You had to actually choose to watch movies or, or buy magazines and things like that. Dr. Rogers said, I used to take a lot of, uh, he, he was asked to preach everywhere, so he was always on the road. And he said, I don't have to determine when I get in my hotel room whether or not I'm going to rent and watch explicit material. He said, I don't have to make that decision because I've already made that decision. And so, guys, that's, that's what he's talking about. We need to resolve to be faithful. We don't need to go through this decision-making process every time we're tempted. We need to make a decision and stick with that decision. We also need to imitate Daniel in the way he worked within the system. You see that he didn't just tell the chief of the eunuchs, I'm not going to do what you say. Instead, he said, may I have permission not to defile myself? And then when he said, well, 
I like you and I'd, I'd like to help you, but I can't because I'll lose my head. Then he went down the chain of command and he said, hey, how about you give us a test? And if it will cause a problem, then we'll, we'll come up with another solution. But right now, let's just try this and see. He worked within the system. He was subservient to the rulers over him. And he did it with respect and with kindness and with intelligence. Now, how do Christians work within the system? Well, one of the ways is through the courts. You know, if you say, hey, I'm not going to bake a, I'm not going to make a cake for a wedding that I don't uh, morally approve of and want to support and use my artistry to celebrate, uh, then the government will sue you if you don't endorse that LGBTQ thing. And so you have to work within the courts. And that's a good example of working within the system. Voting is a very important way that we Americans can work within the system to bring about good social change. Prayer, prayer, prayer. We talk a lot about God's sovereignty, and God is able to do the things that we cannot do. You know, the other day I was talking about, I want to control things. I really do want to control things sometimes. But the older I get and the wiser I get, the more I know I'm not in control of anything. But God is. So if you want to change culture, pray. And the other thing that we can do is we can witness. The salvation of individuals is what's going to change their worldview. And when we change them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, when they become not enslaved to Satan, but slaves of Christ, they're going to think differently. They're going to vote differently. They're going to act differently. And we will cause revolution from the ground up if we will share the gospel with people. Now I want us to see now that God will be faithful to you when you're faithful to him. Now thank God he'll be faithful to you even when you're not faithful to him. But we see here in verses 14 and following that Daniel and his friends trusted God and God was there for them when they did. Verse 14 says, so he listened to them in this matter. That's the guy that was over them about the food and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. Now, guys, it's, I don't have much experience here, but I think if you just eat vegetables and water for 10 days, you're not going to get fatter, right? <laughs> now this, so this is God gifting them and showing his faithfulness to them. So the steward took away their food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So they were tested for 10 days, and then for the next three years, God gave them the grace to be able to do what they were asked to do and they didn't suffer, they didn't uh, become less healthy, they became more healthy. He blessed them physically because they were willing to trust him. As for the four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now what's the difference between a vision and dream? Well, I believe a vision is something you have while you're awake, and a dream is something you have when you're asleep. But those were revelations of God directly to Daniel. At the end of that time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So God blessed them physically because he trusted them, uh, because they trusted God. 
God blessed them. They were faithful to God and God returned the favor by being faithful to them. He blessed them mentally. You know, it says here that these guys were, were learned, were wise in their understanding. They were tested before the king and he impressed them not only with their physical health and, and, and ability there, but with their mental acuity as well. And then he blessed them socially. Uh, you know, the king was favorable to them. This chief of the eunuchs was favorable. And it says that God made him favorably inclined toward Daniel. So the Lord blessed them in all these different ways. They were faithful to God and he was faithful to them. So let me ask you, do we have, as a church, do we have the faith to trust God to catch us when we, when we step out? These Hebrews did not try to manipulate God. You, you can't do that, and they're wise, and they knew you can't manipulate him. They found the best option open to them, and their motive was to glorify God. And they trusted him. They stepped out in faith, and they were rewarded. This is an example that we need to follow. Now, guys, if, if the Bible teaches specifically on a subject, we need to go to the Word to get wisdom on that subject. But there are a lot of things that the Bible doesn't explicitly tell us how to do, right? And when we don't know what to do, here's what we need to do. We need to pray. We need to think. <laughs> I hear sometimes folks pretend that um, faith is sort of the opposite of, of reason and intellect. Nothing could be further from the truth. God gave us a brain. We are supposed to engage that brain. Uh, faith and intellect are not opposing factors. So we are to pray. We are to think. We are to seek counsel. The Bible tells us there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. Now they have to be godly counselors. You'll recall that Solomon's son sought counsel with Solomon's counselors. They gave him good advice. And then he went to his buddies who didn't know anything. And they gave him advice. And he ended up listening to their advice and the kingdom was torn in two from that point on, right? So there's wisdom in a multitude of wise counselors. So we pray, we think, we seek counsel from wise people. And then you know what we do? We act in faith. Faith is not um, getting God on our plan, right? Faith is not saying, here's what I want to do, here's what I decide to do, now God bless me. That is presumption, <laughs> And that presumption is sinful, and it's actually based on pride, right? So that's not what I'm calling faith. You've heard me define faith before as taking God's word, taking what God says, and believing it. That is faith. But sometimes God doesn't address a particular issue. And in that case, we pray, we think, we seek counsel, and we act with the motivation that we're going to glorify God. You know, these Hebrews were interested in bringing God glory. And so they acted in faith, and it wasn't something God had already promised them, but it was that their motivation was to honor God. So if we come up on a problem and we say, how do we handle this? Does the Bible give us explicit direction? No. Okay. What do we do? We pray, we think, we seek counsel, and then we don't act in fear, we act in faith. Again, if we say to God, hey, I've got a plan and I want you to bless it, that is prideful presumption. But if we go to God and we say, we've got an issue here, we've prayed about it, 
We've asked you to direct us, to open doors that we should go through, to close doors we shouldn't go through. And then we have counseled together to make the wisest decision. Then we've got to do what these guys do, which is step out in faith and expect that if our motivation is to honor God, then God is going to be there to catch us, just like he was for these guys. Now, it may look the same if you're stepping out in presumption as if you're stepping out in faith, but there's a world of difference between the attitude of the people that do those things. We would do well to imitate Daniel, but we have a greater example than Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You know, Daniel has a lot, of, a lot of things in common with Christ. Christ is the greater Daniel. They were both called to leave their homes to bear witness to the one true God. Now, Daniel didn't have any choice in leaving his home. He was taken away. But when he found himself in that foreign land, his mission was to represent God well. Christ willfully, intentionally gave up the glory and honor that was his to come to, here, come to the earth and become a servant. So he left his home, came here, and represented God. Neither one of them defiled themselves. Daniel and his friends decided, determined not to defile themselves. And I'm sure they did a wonderful job of it, but they weren't perfect. Christ, however, found himself in the form of a servant and never once in the, in the slightest, minutest detail defiled himself. You know, we're told that God uh, gave favor to these boys. And so they found favor with God and man. Well, that is specifically said about Christ as he was growing up. He grew in favor with God and man. These young fellows displayed the wisdom of God. Jesus Christ is wisdom incarnate. They were tempted to defile themselves with food, right? They were tempted to defile themselves with the king's food and drink. When Satan came, the, the emperor behind the emperor, the real power behind the emperor, he came to Christ and he said, defile yourself with food. Tell these stones to become bread. And Christ would not do it. Daniel was there, we find in verse 21, until the first year of King Cyrus. That sounds like a little, little inconsequential thing that you read over, but let me tell you, that is important. Because the book of Ezra begins right where Second Chronicles leaves off, and that is with the proclamation of this very king, Cyrus. Ezra 1.1 says, In the first year of King Cyrus, this guy that Daniel lived all the way to see his reign, of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. So God allowed his faithful servant to see the day when all that Nebuchadnezzar had done was being undone by King Cyrus. He lived to see the restoration of his people. Again, Christ is the greater Daniel. He was raised to life forever, to not only see, but to accomplish the complete restoration of his people. 
Now, I want to ask you, are you one of those people? Jesus didn't come to deliver us from an evil kingdom like Babylon or even Rome, like some of his disciples and followers thought was his mission. He came to deliver us from the kingdom of darkness and transport us to the kingdom of light. If you'll repent of your sins and place your faith in him, he will deliver you from the captivity and the enslavement of sin. And he will deliver you to the freedom that we sang about when we sang that my chains are gone. 